0: I'm Christy Bourne. And
1: I'm Rainier Wild.
0: Together, we're investigating the mysteries of love and relating.
1: We get gritty and dig deep into why love is the tie that binds us together. And
0: also drives us to our knees.
1: This is our story.
0: This is your story.
1: This is Love Like Hell. Today is the infamous sex episode. We've been been waiting to talk about this for quite some time sort of like our relationship. We talked about everything else besides sex first.
0: In true form.
1: I mean, that, that literally happened that way, right?
0: Yeah, pretty much.
1: <laughs> okay, so we look all the way back at the beginnings of our relationship and this thing, this primordial originating power that spawns all life Sex, orgasm, this most potent and totalizing thing, this powerful reality, sex. We didn't think to talk about all those years ago before we decided to hitch our wagons and get married. So if you could go backwards all that time ago, you and I. We're out like on the first or second date. We're getting to know each other. What do you think you would have asked me?
0: Hmm. Well, apparently I'm still not sure. (laughs) Not those big pause. Now who's on the spot? Yeah. 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 I think that one of the things that occurs to me is that when we met, I was pregnant. So sex was like in plain sight Mm. that there was an outcome that had happened uh, because of my sex life, and I had no clue. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't the Virgin Mary, huh, believe it Mary. or not. Yeah. So that was, I mean, that was our first conversation, you and I together. Maybe our second it was our second conversation. It's really our second. Yeah. Yeah, and so it was on the table, which was really bizarre. It was out front, ahead of us, in many ways. But what would I would have asked you?
1: just to be clear, you know, your, your pregnant belly was out in front of you, but like any great secret that is hidden in plain sight, it was that thing that was known, but that was unknown. We didn't really talk about it. We didn't really talk about it. It could have been the immaculate conception, right? I mean, I knew that you had at least had sex once, you know, it's not like you got on the bus and you weren't pregnant before you got on the bus, but after you got on the bus, you got pregnant. And then we're like, oh my God, something on the seat. <laughs> right? Like the reality is. Who
0: taught you sex ed, by the way, on that oh, one. Does that not happen that way? I didn't know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I've got four kids and I still don't know. Okay. So what's the question you would have asked?
0: Yeah. I think I probably would have asked, what's been your experience uh, in terms of sex or... um your sexual partners or I think maybe even who taught you about sex and how long ago were you introduced to the topic of sex and sexuality? Mm. I probably would have started pretty tame probably to be honest.
1: Yeah. Like how'd you get here? How do you know what you know? What have you done?
0: (laughs) (laughs) What have you done? (laughs) The buildup to what have you done?
1: Yeah. Huh? I wonder what it would have been like to have been asked that. I wonder what I would have said then and there, because I I think I've grown a lot more brave. It's sort of like what Freud said, right? How bold we become when we are loved. I've become a lot more bold with my truth, knowing that I'm loved. I'm not sure what I would have said then. I was probably Altogether, too delighted not to have to reflect on much. Yeah.
0: Yeah. When you ask about sex, you're bringing in the past and you're bringing in those experiences. And so sometimes it can cause embarrassment. Sometimes it can cause shame. Sometimes it can cause, oh, did someone catch me with my pants down kind of (laughs) moments uh, versus where we find ourselves today around acceptance and honesty. Those might have been more hidden.
1: Yeah. Yeah. These are such sensitive topics. Um, you know, I sometimes you and I forget that in part because we have had so many robust and open conversations since all of those very closed lip places. These days we're not unaccustomed to it, but not just personally, but I think professionally. We've talked about this with so many people across the years, been so candid uh in in different rooms, whether as you know yourself as a as a therapist or you know, been grad school professors taught sexual education, right? And all these different venues facilitated groups sat in rooms and men's circles where men spilled their, their guts about how they stepped into the roles often related to sex that they found themselves in. So we've heard a lot. We've said a lot, a lot of these things that might seem tame that come out of our mouth to someone who hasn't had the same set of exposures might sound a little scary. So I do want to warn at least our listeners like, well, we're going to talk about sex. And if that offends your ears, <laughs> you're probably not listening to the right podcast. Um, because we tend to talk a lot about things that polite company doesn't talk about, right?
0: One of the most significant things in teaching human sexuality at a graduate school level is you would think as people coming into to their secondary education, that there would be more openness, that there would be more vulnerability. And what I found in adults uh, and all levels of ages is that complete uncomfortability that people have around this topic. People that have been married, you know, for 20, 30 years and coming back, Pastors that I've worked with, right? Teachers, all kinds of people from different walks of life, young, you know, early 20s to upper range of 60, 70 years old, bring up the topic around sex and everybody shrinks back. And it's wild. You see people go in their shell, you see people get defensive. If you want to offend somebody, go talk about sex.
1: Yeah. It occurs to me that two of the largest insults you can ever leverage against people are simply words for genitals, right? He's a dick, right? He's a pussy. She's a... Cunt. Oh my God. Like I can barely even say it like that. You know, it was like marbles in my mouth in that moment. I didn't want to say it. I had to have you say it.
0: Yeah. One of the activities that we've spent a lot of time doing that this makes me think of is coming up with words and phrases as a group And in the training that I did was talk about all the dirty words because they're not really dirty. They're just things that we don't say out loud. There are things that we think, there are things that we try to explore, there are things we do in private, but God forbid, I would talk about this out loud. And I I seen people cover their head with hats and hoods and wear combat boots, you know, to prepare themselves to talk about something that is so beautiful and that really uh, is so important to talk about.
1: Yeah. And of course, you know, to emphasize the point, it's not beautiful for a lot of people. A lot of people have had uh, experiences from the very beginning that have rendered it void of that beauty that you're talking about. Um, But at the very least, it's about the most basic function of the human species. One of my great teachers and mentors, who was a very crass Armenian man who lived at the beginning of the 20th century, said that sex was like a good shit. Everybody has it. Stop making it more important than a shit. It's just what it is. It's a basic human function. And of course, you're looking at me weirdly right now. But I think it's crass. It's so crass, but I think there's a level to it that needs to be understood because it's basically saying, my God, we've made this so much. It's just a basic human function. It's like breathing air. It's like using the restroom. It's like any normal human function. And yet we have all of these soap operas around it that stop us from being able to have these reasonable conversations. I'm thinking of a couple of moments in my life where people who I was in relationship to first, my parents and then later a group of therapists who I was talking with in a, in a break room, the hushed tones. When we use the words sex, I remember being maybe, mm, I think I must've been 11 years old. And I heard my, uh, my parents talking in hushed tones in the living room and my father had just come back from an extended trip. And, uh, and I hear him say, you know, I'm gone for several weeks and I come back and you don't even offer me sex. And she looks at him with a ferocity and right like even when I hear that or say that today I kind of cringe I'm like my god like that's very misogynistic but that wasn't what she responded to she (laughs) looked at him and said don't you dare say that word (laughs) right it's like the word is threatening (laughs) forget the act itself even the word is terrifying and then of course I remember uh, much less time ago standing in the break room uh, in a center for therapists. And of course we were all huddled back there. And that was when I was in good and acceptable company and uh, trying my best to pretend to fit into that crowd. And I remember the topic of sex came up and all of a sudden it was whispers, it was whispers. And I remember one of the supervisors in the room said, Hey guys, we can't talk about this. Okay. This is a really This is really got real hushed, real like these were things that we shouldn't talk about. Isn't that interesting? That was an irreligious environment, but these were things we shouldn't really talk about, you know. And so I think that, you know, what whatever your culture that you're coming from here, we have a post-Victorian era culture in the United States that is either pornographic in its understanding of sex or it pushes it down and represses it and censors it. we really have this very interesting inability to talk about it in a straightforward way where it just is what it is.
0: Yeah. And I think that with those types of situations and conversations, people clam up really fast and they get red in the cheeks and they pull back and we just don't know how to broach these types of conversations, um, how to enter into them I can think back, I actually don't know if I had a conversation around sex with my parents or at least my mom. I cannot recall that. I can recall reading a book about anatomy with my mom in which I uncovered the pages of my body and things like that. And I think I was a little mortified that I was reading a book about it. At the same time, I don't think that I had a conversation about sex at all
1: how interesting yeah um i had a conversation with my father if if we're talking about where we learned about sex well this is a rather humorous story because my father when i was 12 years old maybe 13 i was a seventh grader in public school i had been going to public school for a bit he said it's time that we go out and have a key talk Now, I still don't understand that term. It's so laughable to me, a key talk. Even at the time, it felt very foreign. I had no clue what this was. Um, But he wanted to go out and and he said, I want you to think of questions that you may have about... The sex? The sex. You know, hushed voice, hushed voice.
0: Oh, the sex.
1: (laughs) Any question you want is really okay by me. I just want you to think about it." Well, you know, God, as soon as you say that, like, really? Now, I've been going to public school for a while and I'm pretty sure that I could probably lecture my dad backwards and forwards on the sex, but he's gonna take me out. And he takes me to my favorite Chinese restaurant. (laughs) And we go, we order crab rangoon, crab puffs. And I remember, you know, I could not fill my mouth with enough crab puffs to forestall the upcoming conversation.
0: Were you avoiding that pretty, pretty hard?
1: (laughs) I was totally avoiding it. This is so awkward. You know, my dad has three kids. I I think he only had sex three times, you know? Um, (laughs) And um, here we are in this very interesting situation. You don't talk about sex with your parents as you've already noted. And my dad is looking at me and he says, you know a few things largely related to here's how here's you know about the birds and the bees i really don't remember what he said but then he gets to the point well what questions do you have and i remember blurting out the only question i could think of well is it possible to have sex with yourself <laughs> <laughs> No, oh, that's so cute. No, of course I had been having quote <laughs> sex with myself for quite a while now, so I knew it was more than possible. And my dad turned beet red, and he shut the conversation down.
0: Conversation was over.
1: Yeah, and then I. What well, re- was
0: his answer? Nothing, huh? He
1: really had no answer. Well, I'm sure you know. Theoretically, it is possible, but it, all things are are uh, possible, but not all things are permissible, pro- profitable, oh, profitable, Under God's law. Uh, something along those lines. And then he. And then he put a very special bracelet that looked like handcuffs on, my, <laughs> on my, my, my left wrist. And it said, keep thyself pure. Right there.
0: Was that to stop you from masturbating? That was to stop me from doing
1: <laughs> anything remotely sexual. So whatever it is, the sacred, beautiful, wonderful thing that God has ordained for one man and one woman, which you should never think about again yeah but that's not where i learned about sex you know where did you learn about sex
0: i i'm having i'm having a real hard time remembering i think i was always very curious and that's my first kind of recollection is i was seeking it out um not i wasn't seeking sex out but i was seeking understanding it i think that that was a big thing for me is that I found myself drawn to um, my only access point, the most pornographical thing kind of I had, pornographical, I don't know if that's a word. Pornographic. Pornographic, thank you so much, Um, (laughs) was the National Geographic. Oh,
1: that was good. That was good stuff right there.
0: (laughs) So that was really my only access point was that. But I always sought it out. It was so interesting because the majority of people in those books did not have clothes on. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So even though it wasn't being talked about, even though I never saw, you know, saw it, I guess. I don't know how I would see it. Um, I would always seek them out. My grandparents had them. And it was like, that was, I was determined to figure it out. Mm. I also had another, the secret, there was a trinity. The the trinity of my curiosity was this, (laughs) the uh, National Geographic. Okay. I was always looking at boobs. and bodies. I wanted to figure it out. Second was how babies are made. That's how I figured it out. It all came back to me. There was how we are born was a book that we had growing up. And boy, did I thumb through that one. (laughs) 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 Yeah, it was all about reproduction. So funny now that I think about it. And then my parents, like I said before, was their wedding album. Oh, yeah. That was like my trinity of information that I needed on planet Earth. And I figured it out by myself. Wow. Yeah.
1: Did you know? I mean, was it sexual or was it reproductive?
0: I'd have no idea if it was sexual. I don't think I got anything out of it besides intense curiosity. Um, I was trying to figure out how it all worked together. Huh. I knew that there was love because I saw my parents, their wedding album. I knew there was love. I knew there was connection. I knew that there was bodies. I knew that there was sexual bodies because I definitely sought out the National Geographic. Wow. I didn't really know how it all worked together, but that was my education.
1: You know, I I, um, I remember beginning to uh, masturbate at a very early age. I don't think I knew it was masturbating, Right. I just knew it was dirty and wrong and I should never do it Uh, because my mom had caught me playing with myself and (laughs) that was no bueno. But you know, like kids explore, and of course, Freud talks about this so much. And I think Freudian theory, which gets poo-pooed upon quite a bit, um, actually does have some some really good things to say about this. One is the pleasure principle, which basically says a child doesn't distinguish um, early on from their elbow to their eyeball to to their their genitals. Pleasure is pleasure is pleasure. And so, you know, the child will sit there and rub their elbow all day if it brings them delight. They'll also rub their genitals. At a certain point in time, they recognize that there's an immense dopamine payload that can come from one of those that does not come from the other. And once they realize that, a different principle sets in. It moves from being the pleasure principle to the reality principle. <laughs> the reality principle is, if I do X, Y, and Z, I'll get the outcome that I want. And that relates a lot to life, right? We go through life living the reality principle. I'll do X, Y, and Z to get the outcome that I want. We kind of leave behind that, uh, again, what Freud called the polymorphous play where everything is uh, experiential, delightful, and sensational, where we embrace pleasure and avoid pain. Children do that quite naturally. And I think all of us kind of come from that and learn otherwise. We learn what things are painful. We learn to associate pain with various places, experiences, create those associations, et cetera. But I had certainly been playing with myself from a very early age. Um, But it was interesting because, you know, the older one gets, the more one receives data that that is or isn't okay. One of the first forms of data I remember getting that told me that my private um playtimes was distinctly not okay besides my parents, you know, like take your hands out of your pants kind of thing um was actually in my very first form of sex ed, which I think was in fifth grade, perhaps. would that be an yeah, that sounds about right yeah, fifth grade, and uh, I was going to a Christian school and I remember that they showed a movie with a high-profile celebrity um, Christian spokesperson, and he was interviewing a serial killer on death row. Oh my goodness! I know. And this is the, this is the sex ed talk, and the serial killer on death row being interviewed by this well-known Christian. Uh, he ends up saying if there is one thing that you could change that would stop you from getting here to this point on death row, what would it be?
0: I feel scared.
1: (laughs) And he said, I wouldn't masturbate. Now, I got to I got to tell you,
0: I feel like laughing, but I feel like it's cringing. It's laughing. I'm like, what? Every
1: eye of the boys in that classroom (laughs) and maybe some of the girls, too, were looking at each other wide eyed and terrified. Actually, I know it was only the boys because we segmented the class for that. So it was just boys in that room. And we're all looking at each other wide eyed like, oh, my God, don't do that thing that you did last Friday (laughs) in the bathroom. Never do it again. If you don't want to become a serial killer, because that's clearly your option here.
0: (laughs) Oh my goodness. Did it scare you to death? Terrified me. Terrified me. So
1: now it's not polymorphous play. Now it's not the pleasure principle. It's actually avoiding becoming a serial killer and a monster.
0: Oh my goodness. That polymorphous play, it seems like to me as you're describing it, it almost feels a little bit like... um, animalistic in the, in terms of like, it just feels natural. I don't have, um, I'm not worried about my surroundings. I'm not worried about the data that's coming in. I'm enjoying my body as it is. Right. And, um, I'm thinking about those initial kind of conversations that you're talking about when shame enters, like everything's okay until it's not until I get information or programming that says otherwise. And, (laughs) Uh, that you don't want to be a serial killer, that would be pretty good programming, pretty good scare tactic. Yeah. Yeah. I can remember, um, and I think this is pretty natural, like for all of us, right? So like as sibling groups, like we might bathe together, we might, you know, like get dressed together. I remember um, all of a sudden the things that I was doing in terms of like people would walk into the bathroom when I was a kid and just go to the bathroom. Mm. So I just went into the bathroom and went to the, like everybody else. Now I was the only one of a different gender.
1: Well, you were the only girl. Yeah. yeah.
0: And so it was really interesting. Like I would be like, okay, this is what we do. We walk in, we use the restroom and then we walk out. And we, I mean, it was just really interesting. And I remember one day like, Hey, Christy, you need to stop doing that. You don't do that anymore. And I was like, Oh, what don't I do? <laughs> you don't do what we do anymore you're you're different than us and we there's privacy which was probably in some ways very appropriate i just i just didn't have a form i didn't have any shame around it mm. right um i think it's really interesting just like the way that you interact uh it's all just kind of data no shame until there becomes a moment where something shifts
1: yeah right this is mythologized of course in the the hebrew story of of the primordial parents, Adam and Eve, being cast out of the garden. And it says they saw themselves and they were naked and they were ashamed, right? Well, they had always been naked, but in that moment, something shifted. They looked at themselves and they became ashamed. And I think for all of us, there comes a moment, and I don't think it's a natural moment. It's an outside looking in kind of moment that happens where we go, oh my gosh, This thing, this thing that I enjoy, this thing that is delightful, this experience, maybe it's just looking at my own body, whatever that is, it's not okay anymore. And, you know, sometimes that can come in the form of trauma, abuse, neglect, all those different things. It can come in that form too. We learn at some point in time that this experience, this naturalness is not okay. And then we plot along in life as best we can. You know, for me, it became a thing of covering up, hiding, making sure that nobody ever knew that I did these things. Kept doing them though, for sure.
0: And I'm really appreciating the fact that you're interweaving this idea that it's not always beautiful. It's not always something that is kind when someone experiences trauma around these things or um, shame comes from a place where something has been done to somebody else without their permission. And I really appreciate that because there's this simplicity. Like I can remember when our daughter, like she was bathing with her brothers, and she said, "When am I going to grow my penis?" You know, (laughs) and that is the delight. That is the unashamed kid that says, "Hey, we all have these bodies. Isn't this great? I wonder when I'm going to get that thing." Right. And it was there was so much innocence in that. And I think that I really appreciate that you say in those moments, some people haven't got to experience those innocent moments because of perhaps something that was enforced or forced upon them. Right. So shame comes and programming comes from a lot of different places.
1: Right. Well, shame doesn't actually always come from places that are traumatic or abusive or neglectful, right? It doesn't have to have that overt connotation attached to it doesn't have to come from a religious experience or a fundamentalist background. Actually, even just culturally, the shifting currents of the relationship of the general culture at large can really shape how a person thinks about sex at an individual level. You know, there are a number of statistics that actually show that today people are maybe talking more openly about sex, but having sex a lot less. There was a really interesting study that Uh, came out within the last decade that showed that men are less likely to proposition women. Women are less likely to accept propositions. (laughs) Just in general, we're less likely to have that. People who uh, at one point were described as open to having sexual encounters that were outside of a typical heteronormative monogamous uh, approach. Today in Similar surveys describe themselves as less likely. We actually live in a very interesting cultural milieu that um, researchers are a little um, skeptical about in the sense that they're scratching their heads like what's happening? Why are people having less sex than ever? So, you know, it's an interesting thing. Again, it's that split between a pornographic culture, but one that's also puritanical in nature. Like so many things, I think we talk big games these days. We talk and transact in ideas and large concepts, but very little experience. I think when you and I were growing up, kind of the latchkey kid era, we had a lot of time to experiment. We weren't just watching things on our phone. You know, we were the great scientists of previous generations and and future ones. We wanted to experiment. We wanted to try. We wanted to do. There was a real experimental quality, I think, that is probably lacking somewhat today. So, I say all of that to just say the cultural aspects of shame can even just be kind of transmitted by osmosis. It's in the air. It doesn't necessarily have to be from a direct over shameful Puritan culture source.
0: And part of our education also growing up, uh, we were on the heels, right, of the 70s into the 80s. And so there was this essence of kind of some free love and exploration that was happening. And there was also some drastic consequences that happened in the AIDS epidemic, right? Mm. And so we had this really interesting twist. And when we were growing up, Uh, Sex became something to be feared uh, in terms of, you know, transmitted diseases, in terms of AIDS. You know, we watched in some ways, you know, Magic Johnson, you know, this great tale of this person that was... you know, a superstar and he plummeted quite quickly in the eyes of America. So we had a really interesting backdrop as well. It didn't have to come like what you said through religion or, you know, all the other routes is like we were being educated that it was like, it was abstinence or it was, oh, you could get something. right? And so in that way, there wasn't a lot of room for pleasure or understanding sex without I think fear 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 was a big undercurrent well
1: and again even to kind of get to this fear today you know we live in the COVID zoom era right and I think of a recent news story in which a uh, a member of high profile network television um, was in a staff meeting and somehow or another The staff meeting was over or his portion was over. He shuts off Zoom and he begins to look at pornography on his personal computer at his house and begins to masturbate. Only he didn't shut off his Zoom. So to his horror, his colleagues are now watching him masturbate. Can you imagine how horrifying and shameful that would feel? Oh, my God. But he was fired for it. And through a process where eventually he was restituted, his job was given back. Um, they recognized it was a tremendous mistake on his part. He comes on air and is interviewed about it because, you know, it, there needed to be an op ed story for him coming back to grace. And in it, he says, Guys, I made a terrible, horrible mistake. And I am so sorry, right? He laid it on very, very thick. And I just thought to myself, man, the, the guy made a bonehead move here and failed to turn off his camera. I kind of feel bad for him, right?
0: Right. He was really villainized for something that probably 99.99999% of people do.
1: I don't have the hard math on that. I haven't done the research, but I think that upwards, like, you know, at some point in time, you've probably pleasured yourself. And that's like the most basic layer. And yet here we are still culturally being told this thing is bad and wrong. And only people, uh, the only people who do it are the people who aren't in the good graces of society. Of course, that's not the truth, though. And it's so ridiculous.
0: And we have, again, scare tactics, right, within that, which is so interesting because we put our finger outward at someone. In reality, we live the same or if not more intensely than that example.
1: Do we live that oh, way? Now, here I want to get pointed. <laughs> I mean... Are you a uh, one of the 99.99%? <laughs> In
0: masturbation.
1: Would you say <laughs> that that includes you or has included you? Would you have said that?
0: Would I have said that back then? Yeah. You know, uh, one of my first memories of masturbation, I actually think we had this conversation and you asked about that when I was younger. And I was like, oh no, no, I didn't do that. And then I told you a story of which I used to read romance novels. Like Harlequin romance novels. No, like romantic. Like the storyline was like Nicholas Sparks. And there was another one. Like real mushy. Oh yeah. Like Daniel Steele. Okay. A little steamier there. Yeah. 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 That would just like get your heart racing. And I, I'm sure my parents were like, why are you reading Daniel Steele? (laughs) And I would bring them home and boy, I was like voracious in my reading But what I assumed was masturbation. I always thought masturbation had to be like penetrative. Yeah. And, but not like just rubbing. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. And boy, did I get a workout in terms of reading and enjoying the rubdown. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Right When I was definitely in high school. And I remember thinking, I must have thought that it wasn't okay, even though I probably wouldn't have said that it was called masturbation, because I'd be reading these books in my bedroom, which you talked about, like, you know, our kids have phones and things like that we had books. Yeah. <laughs> and as soon as someone would knock or come in, boy, I would chuck that book under my covers and pretend like I was doing nothing. Right. So I obviously knew that there was something going on there, but I would have never said that I was masturbating. That's how disconnected I was from the idea of sexuality.
1: Right. There was a real sense of being cut off or repressed where you would say, what sexuality? Like what? Me? No, never. I wouldn't.
0: Yeah. I wouldn't do that.
1: Yeah. And right there we see two different strategies to deal with shame. You know, I was very aware that what I was doing was sexual. I was totally conscious of it and I felt profoundly ashamed of it and I hid it. And when I got caught doing it, I would beg and plead, and apologize to God and my neighbors and my parents, and whoever else I could think of to apologize. I would go, I would solicit the pastor, I would solicit accountability groups, later psychologists, you know, all the things that people do to, to say, I don't want to be masturbating anymore. I was suppressing. Suppression was the name of the game. Suppression is when you try and deny or hide, and then later, Cut away the thing that you're ashamed of. But you had a different strategy. Your strategy was repression. And repression is really when you try to cut away so very well that you're no longer even conscious of it. You're disconnected, you're numb to your body, even.
0: Yeah, that was definitely the route that my mind took. And I think in some ways it was so sneaky, I had no idea that that's what was happening. Um, That's been something for me that I've really uncovered is that I was so disconnected from my body. Like I didn't think of my body as sexual in nature at all. I would really cover it up. I never really paid attention to it. I didn't really know how it worked. I wouldn't have called it sexy by any means. Um, I didn't want to draw attention to it. Um, Yeah, I didn't have desire around it. So for me, it's been a big journey in terms of like this idea of like masturbation, like I might've been like the zero, 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 like one, you know, because I had, um, not recognized myself in that way or allowed myself to think that way. And so I was very effective at it. My body was, uh, used as a, you know, like I was an athlete. So my body was really used functionally. Sexually, that was not something that I encountered. In fact, and I, we've talked about this before, when, when I would get close in relationships, um, my body really didn't know how to handle attraction and things like that. I just, I had no container for it. Um, and I think in terms of even like menstruation, things like that, it was like, it was something that got in the way. It was something that slowed you down. It was something to be upset about. Like, I can't believe this thing has happened to me. Um, And today I look at that and think like, oh, that happens to so many women is that it becomes something that is disgusting. It becomes something that we don't talk about, that we cover up, whether it's smells or how it gets in the way of our daily routines and sex life. It's like, we are so disconnected from our bodies, um and that was really like for me, I've really had to recover and discover those places because they were so deeply embedded,
1: yeah, I think your personal journey really reminds me of the cultural journey in general, writ large, that women describe when they talk about the effects of the last maybe two hundred or so years of puritanical christian victorian culture uh, within particularly Western civilization, right? This real shutdown. You know, I even think of how women were um, diagnosed as having hysteria if they orgasmed, right? A woman was considered hysterical and might even be institutionalized depending on her own sexual appetites, right? There was this real large sense that that a woman who was connected to her sexuality was a danger, was dangerous, was mentally unstable. And of course, because we invent diagnoses around the idea of social stability and acceptability, um, we were more than happy to hand out diagnoses and prescriptions and prognosis of health for a lot of women during that time. Today, I see a great flowering of female sexuality. You know, you see it on the internet, you see it on social media. I think that women are often stepping into a degree of sexual power and abundance from what I can tell. I think men, interestingly enough, tend to still be employing the suppression game. I see suppression um, and the shame of male sexuality Uh, often applied. I don't think men know how to be very sexual. Again, there's the pornographic and Puritan split that's happening. On one hand, the only ways that we're talking about or thinking about sex are often in secret and in isolation and its most aberrant forms, right? We're developing these huge expectations off of pornography, off of, off of, you know, I mean, maybe, maybe Xbox friends or, or whatever that is developing all these expectations, but then not encountering those things in the real world, not having the experiences that validate or back it up. And so when those encounters happen or when those exchanges happen and inevitably go poorly, we sink back into isolation and become profoundly ashamed. We go back into a suppression racket. So men more than ever are going to sexual addiction centers and all of these kind of things seeking help for something that is basic and functional, but men don't actually know how to take on outside of the suppression racket, outside of shame.
0: It's interesting working with women. I can remember in my own personal life thinking about sex like it's messy. And should it be messy? And should it like there's all these ideas that we have because of what we see versus what we experience? And some of the women that I have worked with, there's not a lot of pleasure points for them. Yeah. Um, they have it's become functional again, it's something that you do. It's also something that like well, in order to keep my man interested, I've got to, you know, at least give him the sex, right? (laughs) Instead of it being this really mutually beautiful expression that is really messy, that isn't, you know, like all um, boxed up, um, that isn't like what we actually see on movies and TV. And it's actually not what we see in porn either, right? And so there needs to be... (laughs) you know, in our conversations, like what is actually realistic? What is actually, um, you know, not this unattainable thing. And for me, it really comes with self-acceptance and vulnerability and relationships.
1: Yeah. You know, we, we started this episode by kind of asking the question, where and how, and, and why did you learn about sex? And, you know, it sounds like a lot of our, our answer to that question was, well nobody really ever told me not really. I learned it from a lot of different ways and kind of pieced it together like a patchwork quilt. We weren't very well armed to understand how these things happen and I'm not sure if head knowledge really gets you there. You know I think of the ancient Hawaiians who would assign their developing um, young people kind of mentors and guides to to take them through and and show them the ropes in fact um both men and women were able to be um, polyamorous in nature. They were expected to take on many lovers. A woman um, wouldn't even marry until after she had had her first child to wanted to make sure that that she could have children. So, I mean, this this really delightful aspect to at least the ancient Hawaiian cultures that valued experiences. And I think, you know, you see that a lot. Today, we don't. We value innocence over experience. Right. And I think that's a vestige of the Victorian era um, Christian world that I think built the foundations of the United states. we we privilege innocence over experience. Um but, as they say in the music man, the sadder but wiser girl for me, uh, and I think that the reality is, we want experiences. We want to develop you know, a wide repertoire of being able to have these conversations, of being able to be open in our encounters and be able to know what's going on and be able to have an unashamed, a shameless vision of how to be, right? Wouldn't it be nice to be able to talk about these? And I think one of the things that we've really lost, and you kind of get to this, is um, we've really lost a category. For sex, where it's it's just discovery, right? Again, getting back to that polymorphous play, I think sex is maintenance. You just described it. I gotta keep my man happy. I gotta I gotta satisfy her needs. Um, maintenance sex. I think there's reproductive sex, and I think for a lot of people, that's it. Those two buckets. You know, there is a third category. And that's the endless adventure.
0: Pleasure. Pleasure. Discovery, yeah. curiosity. Right.
1: When you simply get to be able to say, oh, what's your elbow feel like mm-hmm. again? What, what What's it like when I touch that part of your back?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And as we're really unpacking this, in partnering with someone or being in romantic relationships, those questions at the beginning are really important. Like, what does sex mean to you? What has your experiences been? Um, uh, What do you enjoy? Um, What do you want to discover? And And I think that sometimes we don't even know if those questions are okay, if we have permission to do that. Uh, We have so much wrapped up in it. Um, I know for me, I didn't have those containers of freedom. And I look at it and I had so much prescription for how things should be. I really fell into those categories of like reproductive and functional, like play. Like I know it's, it's like almost so cringy now for me to even really say that but it was so true. And I don't think that I really heard a lot of females at the time um, really enjoying their sex life. And I know I got together with some, some friends that I went to college with and we all got together and the way they were talking about sex, there's a big group of us was like that they could take it or leave it. And today when I have conversations about sex, I say, Oh, then you really haven't had sex,
1: right?
0: (laughs) Right. If you could take it or leave it, you must not have had sex. And I mean, you must not have been pleasured in a way that makes your toes curl and that makes you meow like a cat or scream, you know, like a cheetah. Like I am saying like, wow, because we haven't learned that it's okay to be messy. It's okay to explore. It's okay to be curious. And I long so much for others to have those experiences because when you've had that, you think, oh, you wouldn't make that comment if you had something different.
1: You know, sex is the originating source of life for all of us humans. You know, we're all born out of an orgasm, hopefully too, And, uh, I think that it is such a potency. It is such a power. It's deep ability to level us, to bring us into contact with the real real is so incredible that of course, most religions have cautioned us against wanting to have sex. Like, of course, the states and and governances want to legislate what you can do with your body and with whom and where. Like, of course, the powers that be want to mitigate and control this force. Because if people knew the potency and the power by which they were engaging in this act, they would wear. Helmets to the bedrooms, lest an explosion happen on the bed. Right? There's something so powerful about it. If we only knew, sex doesn't just come out of good relationships, good sex can actually transform a relationship into a good relationship. It's very true. I think that you have to be willing to set aside outcomes to set aside timelines, to set aside agendas, and to learn to simply be with, to learn to be with your body, to learn to be with their body, and to learn to delight. Delight again. It's like rediscovering yourself again. Thank you for listening to this episode of Love Like Hell.
0: We appreciate your support so much.
1: Listen, would you do us a small favor? If you love the show, will you leave a fabulous five-star review?
0: And don't forget to share this with all your friends.
1: Okay. Well, until next week, I'm Rainier. And I'm Christy. Live like mad and love Love like... Love like hell. Love like hell. That that was my signature. (sighs)